When I asked Joe why he came to see me, he said it was because his wife wanted him to come see me. She, he said she had left and, and won't come back until he gets, gets some help. Well, I asked, well, what was going on? Why did she leave? I don't know. Well, uh, what, what's the problem? I have no idea. You'll have to ask her. About 30 minutes of questions with the similar responses, I finally brought her back into the room. She actually came with him. And as she began to describe things, she reported that uh, Joe was, was a very devout Christian who believed in his Christian beliefs that a, that a wife is to submit to the governance and control of the husband. And therefore, he dutifully dictated his wife's behavior. He told her where she could go, how long she could stay, who she could talk to on the phone and, and when she could use the phone. He dictated what clothes she could wear, how much money she could spend. Basically, he dictated every aspect of her life and, of course, commanded when she should serve and wait on him. Now she was leaving him. She didn't, he didn't have any idea why. In his mind, he was following the Bible. Therefore, he concluded that she must be a loose woman. Joe did not understand the law of liberty, the law that I'm going to teach you this morning. When I talk about the law of liberty, I'm not talking about some legislative enactment or some rule put in force by a powerful potentate. I'm talking about a principle upon which things in the universe run, similar to the law of gravity. I want you to consider the law of gravity for a moment. Do you have to think about gravity for gravity to work in your life? Do you have to know about gravity for gravity to work? If you were to, to reject gravity, ah, oh, you just made that up, Dr. Jennings. I don't believe gravity for a second. And you, and you go up to the top of this building and say, I repudiate it, I refuse to believe it, and you step off the building. Will gravity care? No, gravity is still going to work. Law of liberty is on this order. You don't have to know about it. You may have never heard of it. You can reject it and not believe in it. It still works. And just like gravity, it is extremely predictable. The only variable with gravity is degree of violation. Step off a 40-foot building, you're probably going to die. Step off a 4-inch curb, you'll twist your ankle. But gravity is doing the same thing in both places. Liberty is like this. The, the only variable is degree of violation. Let me give you some examples. Imagine a young man is dating a woman that he finds incredibly attractive. And after months of dating, he is convinced this is the one he wants to spend his life with. So he takes her out to a, a nice restaurant, out to a, a park, a walk in the garden, gets down on a knee and proposes. Now she feels fondly for him. She's got feelings of affection. But she's not quite sure that he's the right guy. So she asks for a little while to think about her answer, at which time he becomes terribly insecure. He stands up, he reaches in his pocket, he pulls out a pistol. He says, look, I spent my time on you. I spent my money on you. You better marry me and you better love me or I will kill you. You know, you laugh. But how does she respond to that? Does she respond by saying, oh, finally, a strong man, he'll take care of me? No. Consequence number one, does love go up or does love go down? When liberties are violated, love is always damaged. Consequence number one on your paper, love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed. When you violate liberties, love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed. Consequence number two, does she have a desire to get closer to this man or a desire to get away as fast as she can? Consequence number two, a desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. 
a desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. I'm going to tell you about a third consequence in just a moment, but I want you to imagine you're out this weekend with your, your significant other and you're out at a restaurant. And the waitress comes up and says, what would you like to drink? And you say, well, I'd like a Coca-Cola, please. And your spouse looks to the waitress, not to you, and says, she's not allowed to have Coke, you bring her milk. Do you love him a little more? Oh, he's just looking out for my health. Does love get stronger or does love get bruised in that experience? You see, if that's the only thing that's ever happened in your whole relationship, that won't kill the relationship, will it? But it will bruise it. It pushes it the same way. Do you have a desire to snuggle next to the person who's just told you, you told the waitress you can't have Coke, or do you want to go to a table by yourself? See, a desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. In every circumstance, when we violate liberties, we take away freedoms, love is always damaged, and a desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. There's a third consequence that comes. If you're in that situation where your freedoms are being violated, where your liberties are being violated, and you have the option to leave, but you don't exercise that option, instead you choose to stay, a third consequence occurs, and that is your individuality is slowly eroded. Your ability to think and reason for yourself is destroyed, and you become what I call a shadow person. Third consequence, individuality is eroded, you become a shadow person. Shirley came to see me, Shirley came to see me, referred by our primary care physician, for years of depression and dysthymia, a low dysphoric mood. When I asked her what was going on with her, it was very hard to get any history from her. She kept her head down. She didn't make any eye contact. She answered questions with, "Uh uh-huh, uh-uh. And slowly over time, though, she, she began to disclose that she'd been married to a man who for the last 20 years physically abused her on a regular basis. And she told me one story at which he wanted dinner ready at five. Have dinner ready at five. She goes in the kitchen. She works diligently. She puts dinner on the table a little after five, at which time he begins to hit her. And as he's hitting her, he's telling her, I hate it when you make me do this. Why do you make me do this? If you would have dinner ready on time, I wouldn't have to hit you. I only hit you because I love you. And I expressed some disgust at her description. And that's when she looked up and made eye contact with me for the first time. And she said, Oh, no, it wasn't his fault. If I would have had dinner ready on time, he wouldn't have had to hit me. Was she thinking for herself? She had lost her individuality. She had surrendered her thinking, her reasoning to her domineering husband, and she saw the world only through his eyes. She had become a shadow of her husband. This was one of Mary's problems. Mary was a 30-year-old female who came to see me, referred by her primary care physician, She complained of panic attacks, depression, generalized anxiety, inability to relax, worrying all the time, inability to think clearly or make decisions. She'd been to several doctors previous to me me and been tried on a whole host of medications without any significant improvement. Then she told me that when she, she had been recently dating a guy in the recent past and that during that experience he was domineering and controlling. He pressured her into having sex before she was ready. She came to the point of realizing this was unhealthy and and decided she wanted out of the relationship. So she she went to him and and told him that she wanted to end the relationship, at which time he became increasingly aggressive, domineering, and demanded that she go with him to a justice of the peace and get married. And so she did. And now she was having panic. Now she was having anxiety because her individuality was being submerged in the domineering, controlling, overbearing governance of her husband. I want you to imagine you're gone swimming, and while you're swimming, somebody reaches in and pushes your head underwater. 
Now, for one or two seconds, that's not too bad. Maybe even 10 or 15, you can, you can handle that. But what about 20, 30, 40, a minute, a minute and a half? Isn't it true the longer your head is held underwater, your anxiety level rises, your panic level rises to the point you become to abject, frantic panic. If you don't get out, now you're going to die. This is what happens psychologically to your individuality, to your identity. If you're in a relationship where you're required to submerge yourself in, in, under the governance and control of another person. Oh, you can do it for a week, a month, maybe six months. You can do it for a little while. Things aren't too bad. You can hold your breath that long. But if you continue to stay, there comes a point in time where you either must get out or you lose yourself permanently. Your physical body is still alive, but your ability to think and reason as an individual is destroyed. And at, 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 as that time approaches, your anxiety levels will rise. You will begin to have panic. You will begin to be oppressed. Some people will medicate themselves with alcohol in situations like this. This was depicted classically in the old 1950s and 60s movies with the women who would stay at home with their martinis all day with the domineering and controlling businessmen as their identities were submerged in these domineering and controlling men, medicating themselves to avoid the panic and anxiety that comes when you have no individuality. Most people don't use, what I, what, don't use real guns in their relationship. Most people use what I call emotional guns. These are the guns that fire when you don't do something that your significant other wants you to do. And you know what the guns are. If you're not where you're, they're supposed to be, they'll pout. They'll holler. They'll criticize. They may curse. They may stomp, slam doors. But you know that when you're on your way home and you walk through that door, there's a gun pointed at you. And if you don't do things just right, there's going to be a price to pay. In relationships like that, individuality is slowly destroyed. Love is slowly damaged. John was a small man in his late 50s. He had attended college briefly, but did not graduate. He was a, he was a man of significant intelligence. He was a self-taught man. He was a senior foreman of a large construction company and had been involved in construction from an early age. He, run several, he ran several large crews and had received multiple bonuses for his outstanding work. John had been married to his only wife for over 30 years. He was the father of three adult successful sons, yet he came to see me depressed, hopeless, insecure, suffering with low self-esteem and discouragement. He was confused. He, he thought as he looked at his life that everything should be going well with his job and with the success of, success of his sons. He, he didn't have any major problems, yet he couldn't figure out why he was always down and depressed. John reported that very early in the first year of his marriage, he and his wife gotten into an argument. And in that argument, his wife threatened to leave him if he didn't give in to her demands. He reported that this significantly frightened him and scared him, so he backed down and gave in to her demands. And then he described scenario after scenario in their marriage over the years in which he would evaluate a situation, come to a conclusion, come to an opinion that he thought was right that differed from his wife, but he would back down and avoid expressing himself for fear of a tantrum, for fear of her acting out, for fear of her getting upset, or worse yet, fear of her threatening to leave. Through 30 years of marriage, he had lived in fear. Despite his successes at work, he came home considered, and considered himself a failure. Regardless of how clearly he thought and how effectively he made decisions outside the home, he was seldom right in his home. 
He reported that in his mind, he frequently disagreed with his wife, but never expressed the disagreement for fear of the consequences. When liberties are violated, love is always damaged and eventually destroyed. A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart, and if rebellion, the desire to rebel, doesn't result in restored autonomy and freedom, individuality is slowly eroded, and we become shadow people. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to take my word for this. This is a law. You can test it. Try it out on your significant other. See how it works. Begin commanding the one you love to, to obey and toe the line and inflict some type of punishment if they don't. See what happens in your relationship to love. You can test this. It works. But if you want love to grow in your family, if you want love to grow stronger, I recommend that you begin practicing freedom and test it in the positive side. Begin extending freedom. Begin granting freedom to the one you love and see how love grows in your marriage. You can test it that way as well. Liberty cuts both ways. What I mean by that, when you extend liberty to someone you love, giving them the freedom to have their own opinion, giving them the freedom to think negatively about you, giving them the freedom to think that you're wrong, you give yourself the freedom to not be controlled by their opinion. Liberty cuts both ways. Set other people free and you set yourself free at the same time. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Which brings us to the law of love. What is love? Where does it come from? How can we know it? And this is confusing because there are many, many counterfeits to love in our society. I'm not going to be talking about the counterfeits today. I, I describe those in my book. But I'm going to talk to you about the genuine. So that when you see the genuine and know the genuine, then you can identify any of the counterfeits that don't fit the genuine. The law of love is the law upon which all other law in the universe is based. All the law that emanates from God, that is. It is the law which emanates from the very character of God himself. This is not an imposed law. This is not an edict that God has put forth. This is not something that God decided one day to enact. This is a principle that actually emanates from God's very being as God is love. 1 John 4.8 And Paul tells us in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 that the quality of this love, he describes what this love is like in these words. He said, love is not self-seeking. Well, that's kind of a negative way to say it. If we spin it into a positive, if love is not seeking self, then love is seeking others. Love is outward moving. Love is uh, other seeking. Well, God is love. Then we can say God is not self-seeking. God is other seeking, outward moving. The heart of God is vested in the health, welfare, and, and good of other beings. God is constantly moving himself to uplift, to heal, to regenerate, to create, to do good for other beings. This is a law of love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's eternal power and divine nature, God's nature is love, his divine nature can be seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. Wait a minute. Okay, if his nature is love and his nature can be seen in what he has made, are you saying that we can actually see the law of love in nature? We can look out into the things he's created and see love? You bet. The oceans. And by the way, this law is the secret base code upon which all life 
in the universe is designed to operate. This is the principle upon which God designed everything to run. And I'm going to show you this law in nature. And then I'm going to show you how harmony with this law will bring you health and bring you happiness. The oceans will give their waters to the clouds, which will rain over the lands, forming the lakes, rivers, and streams, bringing life to the land, flowing back to the ocean, completing the never-ending circle of giving. If a body of water separates from the circle, it stagnates, and everything in it dies. It is only as it continues to flow is there life. The law of love is the law of giving, which is the law of life. You see this in the flowers which give their pollen to the bees and the bees which give their industry to the flowers, thus both giving freely to the other. If either one stops their ministry to the other, they both die. The trees give their nuts to the squirrels. The squirrels eat, spread, and bury the nuts, giving their time and energy to the trees, thus increasing the number of trees and the number of squirrels. If either one stops their giving to the other, they both die. You see this in every breath you take. As you give away freely carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give back oxygen to you. You say, look, I don't want to be part of that circle of giving thing. If my body created carbon dioxide, it's mine. I have a right to keep it. You can't have it. Well, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. The circle of giving is the circle of life, which is the circle of love. And all life is created to operate on this, pl- this principle of free giving. And I'm going to tell you a secret. When God has his way in our life, and finishes his healing plan, it will be as easy to love others as it is to breathe. That's how easy it will be. I mean, when was the last time you get up in the morning and said, man, I've got to breathe today. Look, there's 12, 14 breaths a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours. That's a lot of breathing. Man, I don't want to do all that breathing. That's hard. Unless your lungs are really, really badly diseased. And if your lungs are really, really badly diseased, then it's very hard to breathe. It's hard for us to love because our hearts are very, very badly diseased. And as God heals us, restores us, regenerates us, recreates us in righteousness, it will be easy to love others as it is to breathe. You see this in everything God has created, this circle of love, even in electricity. The electricity is the flow of electrons. Remember your atoms, neutrons and protons, surrounded by electrons around the outside of the neutrons and atoms, and neutrons and protons. And the electrons will flow from one atom to the next in the flow of electrical current. We call it an electrical current as it flows. But the electrons, the electricity, the electrical current can only flow if there's a complete circle we call a circuit, an electrical circuit. If you break the circuit the electrons can't flow. Well, this is true for our lights. If we, the lights are on right now, we have complete circuits. If you throw the switch to turn the lights off, you have just broken the circle, broken the circuits. Electrons cannot flow. Well, this is true not just for the equipment we use. This is true for the electrical circuits of your brain. In order for the electrons to flow in your brain, there has to be circles, the complete circles. If you break the circuits, electrons cannot flow. You see the circle of love, the circle of life, and everything God creates. The electrons circle around the atoms. The 
uh, planets circle around the sun, the solar system circles in the galaxies, the galaxies circle in the universe. And as Ezekiel looks into heaven, in Ezekiel chapter 10, seeing the throne of God, his representative of his, of his governorship and his, and, his, and his rulership, and at the foundation of the throne, looking at the foundation of what his government is based upon, what does he see in vision but the wheel within the wheel, the rotation within the rotation, the circle within the circle. The law of love is the law of life. It's the principle that everything in the universe is designed to operate upon. You see this in every living system, even in our economy. For an economy to be healthy, the money has to be in circulation. If you take the money out of circulation, the economy dies. Uh, If you've been keeping up with the news recently, Congress and the President are working on a stimulus package, and their plan is to do what? Cut taxes in order to infuse money into the circulation so the economy will revive. It's based on the law of love. The law of love is the circle of life. Every living system has to have the circle intact in order for life to exist. God tried to teach us this in the Old Testament sanctuary service, the Old Testament sacrificial service. Remember, the sinner would come with the lamb. The sinner would place his hands on the head of the lamb. He would confess sin. And then, notice this, the sinner not the priest. Notice, never a representative of God killing the lamb. It was always the sinner. Sinner then cuts the circulation. The life is in the blood and the blood circles. And the circulation is teaching that when sin cuts the circle of love, the circle of life, death ensues. God has taught us this this truth. The lifeblood of an economy is its money. The lifeblood of an electrical system are the electrons. The lifeblood of an animal is its physical blood. And the lifeblood of the universe is love. The lifeblood of the universe is love. Love flows from God through Christ out to all creation and back to God again. Psalms 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Regenerating, recreating, healing, bringing life to the soul. We're going to talk this weekend, all day today, we're going to talk about how this circle of love has been broken. How lies about God have gotten into our minds and sever the circle of love, sever the principle of life, keep us from being regenerated, keep us from being reconnected to God. One of those lies is the law of God is what brings death. The law of God requires death. So the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, regenerating the soul. It teaches there's another law, Paul talks about it. He says that the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, there's another law, the law of sin and death. That's where death comes from, not from God's law. God's law is the law of life. So why do we die if we violate God's law of love, if we break the circle of beneficence? Does God have to use his power to inflict penalties? Does God have to use his power to kill? Or is it a natural consequence? Well, let's look at a couple of analogies. I have to help my patients see this because my patients don't understand these principles of God's government. They don't understand God's principles of natural law. 
Many of my patients will come to me and they, and they say, you know, Dr. James, I, I pray every day for, for peace. I pray every day for happiness. I pray every day that, that my, my troubles will go away. I have patients who have uh, lung disease. And they pray every day for better lung functions, that God will heal their lungs. And I say, well, have you stopped smoking yet? Well, no. And so I say, well, if if you went to the top of a building and and you jumped off the building and and on the way down you prayed to God for good health and a long life, what do you think will happen? If you stop brushing your teeth, Don't brush them, don't floss at all. But you pray to God every day, long and hard, for healthy teeth. What do you think will happen? Is prayer substitute for making choices and governance of yourself that are reasonable and healthy? No. God has given us freedom, and we have a responsibility to make choices to cooperate with Him, don't we? We have a responsibility to open the heart to trust Him. We have a responsibility to open the heart to let the Holy Spirit in, to enlighten, to recreate, to regenerate. Will God force His way into our hearts? When Revelation says, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone he, uh, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What door is He talking about? The door to our minds. What do you think He's knocking with? Is He knocking with His fist on your forehead? Rap, rap, rap. He's knocking with truth. Truth presents itself to your mind. Think about it. We've all had the experience where some truth has come to our mind and we're faced with that truth and we have to decide, am I going to open the heart and let it in and become part of my life or am I going to turn away from the truth? Isn't that what the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, comes to our mind? And so God is knocking on our hearts with truth and the ultimate truth we're going to discover this weekend is the truth about Him. And so the question, what is it that broke the circle of love. What is it that broke this law, this law that all life is based upon? I want you to imagine a married couple. We talked about this last night. We're going to talk about it again because this is probably one of the central things that I want you to walk away this weekend from, understanding what the real problem with sin is all about. Imagine everyone in this room is a ha- that is married is in a happy, healthy, loving marriage. And someone close to you, a brother, a sister, a parent, a a grown child, somebody close to you comes to you and tells you a lie about your spouse, that your spouse is having an affair. And they bring digitally enhanced photos that they've created off their computer showing your spouse with another person. Now, it's a lie. There's no truth in it. But if you believe the lie, does something inside of you change? Does the circle of love and trust get broken? Yes, this is what happened in heaven. Lucifer told lies in heaven. Imagine very quickly that, that you're an angel in heaven. You've had no, you've had no sin. There's, you have no carnal nature, nothing to tempt you. Lucifer, as you're woken to consciousness by God, you're privileged to meet the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and this incredible being named Lucifer as well. And over the course of eons, you have a, you have a, a special affinity for Lucifer. Well, you love the Father and the Son. Lucifer and you have so much in common because he's an angel, you're an angel. Uh, he's come from God's presence on many occasions and shared with you wisdom from God's throne that has enlightened your mind and, and just filled you with wonder and awe. You've traveled the universe with him. He's been to your house. You've been to his. You've sung in the choir together. And over the course of time, you all have become close friends and confidence. And one day he comes from God's presence and says... Hey, I've got something I've got to share with you. God isn't all he pretends to be. It has taken me millennia to get close enough to see through the smoke screen. He pretends to be love. He's not really love. 
He only pretends to be loved for those who do everything just like he says. But if you have an individual thought, if you have any autonomy, anything you really want to do on your own, he'll use his power to hurt you, to make you suffer, and ultimately kill you. You can't trust God. Now, if you were that angel, oh, man, what would you do? This is Lucifer, your friend. What would you do? Might you want to pray for wisdom? And so you go to God yourself. You say, Father, um, Lucifer and I just had a conversation. He said some things that are quite troubling and quite scary, frankly. And, and Lord, I love you, but, but I love Lucifer too. I don't want to have to choose. God might say, well, I'm glad you love us both because love is good. But I have to assure you what Lucifer's saying is, is just not true. Oh, you're relieved. Thank you, Father. Thank you. I knew there had to be a misunderstanding. Lucifer, I got some good news, man. Got some good news. I just talked to the Father. He said there's a misunderstanding. What you said just isn't right. And Lucifer looks at you with tears in his eyes, puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I know, I know. That's just the point. God is lying. If you were that angel, up to that point in universal history, had Lucifer ever done anything to harm anyone up to that point? What history could you look back on to determine which one was telling the truth? What evidence did you have? Do you see the difficulty the angelic host had in this? Lies believed broke the circle of love and trust in heaven. Lies believed broke the circle of love and trust on earth. Did God really say in the day you eat you will die? No, come on. Look at me, I can speak now. I've got, I've got language skills and I'm just a serpent. He knows in the day you eat you're going to be like God yourself. You can't trust what that guy says. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And once love and trust is broken, the next consequence comes. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I no longer trust you, God. You've been lying to me. You're not out for my best good. I'm now afraid of you. And because I don't trust you to watch my back, well, I've got to watch out for myself. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, fear and selfishness. And then fear and selfishness, also known in the world today as survival of the fittest. When you hear survival of the fittest described in science, you can be sure that they're talking about the infection, Satan's principle that is infecting and destroying and killing God's creation. It is the principle that works just the opposite of the law of love. It is the principle that breaks the circle of love and brings pain, suffering, and death. And I will describe that more to you in just a moment. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of disobedience, what we call sins, the bad things we do. Notice we are three steps down in the process before the bad acts come. The bad acts that we so often focus on are not the primary problem. They're the symptom of the primary problem. And bad acts result in damage to mind, character, and body, a terminal condition. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you hate your brother in your heart, excuse me, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He's telling us the bad acts are a result of a sick heart and mind. The heart and mind is the problem. The bad acts result from the sick heart and mind. Sin is based on fear and selfishness. I heard a story in Texas of a chemistry professor, a high school chemistry professor, And two of her senior students were arrested for arson and insurance fraud. You see, she was several months behind in her car payments, and the car was going to get repossessed. 
And so she had two students who were failing chemistry, and she went to them and said, if you steal my car and burn it, I can claim the insurance, pay off my debt, and I will give you passing grades in chemistry. So they did. And they all got caught, and they're all in prison now. But think of the motivation. What was the motivation for her to do this? Fear, fear of financial failure, fear of maybe having some job problems because she's gone bankrupt, fear of of the consequences of of not being able to make her payments, and self-centeredness, thinking only about herself and not about anyone else. What about the students? What was their motivation for doing this? Fear of failure, fear of not graduating with their class, fear of the consequences, and selfishness, thinking only of themselves. Fear and selfishness lead us into temptation and sin. Now on this planet, there are two antagonistic principles at war. God's principle of self-sacrificing love, which Christ summed up when he said, greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend, which means I love you so much. I'll do whatever I have to for your health, for your welfare, for your beneficence, for your good, including if it comes down to it, give my life that you might live. At war with Satan's principle of survival of the fittest, which says, I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to promote myself, advance myself, exalt myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you, that I might live. Give myself that you might live, kill you, that I might live. The two antagonistic principles at war on this planet, warring for each of our hearts, and each one of us have to decide on which side of this equation we're going to be found. Moment to moment, day to day in our lives, we're constantly pulled in one or two directions. Am I going to give myself, serve others, lift up others, give beneficence to others, or am I going to let the temptation of fear and selfishness cause me to exploit others, walk on others, take advantage of others to promote myself? God is wanting to free our hearts and minds from fear and selfishness, to write his law of love, his law of life in our hearts and minds again. He wants to heal us, to recreate us, to transform us, to regenerate us, to be like Christ. This is the the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, Christ says, the new covenant experience. I will write my laws on their hearts and minds. No one will say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for we will all know him. God is wanting to regenerate and restore. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. This is what God is calling us to, this end time people, preparing a group, ready to meet him face to face. And he's had friends in history that have had this experience, had the fear and selfishness purged, had the law of love written in. Remember Moses at age 40, murdered the overseer, practicing the survival of the fittest principle. But at age 80, God offered to start a nation with Moses. Moses offered to give his life to save others. Something had changed. Saul of Tarsus, prior to his Damascus Road experience, would beat, imprison, and stone other people, practicing the survival of the fittest method. But after Damascus Road, he writes in Corinthians, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live. A transformation, a regenerating process. The law of survival of the fittest has been replaced with the law of love. In Revelation chapter 12, God describing the people who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes, the people who are ready to take that fiery chariot ride into heaven, the people that are ready to see Jesus face to face in these words, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The need to protect self, the survival of the fittest principle has been replaced and love has been written in again and we are willing to give our lives that others might live. Open your hearts and minds to the truth about God. 
Open your hearts and invite Him in. Receive His love and join again the circle of love, the circle of giving, the circle of beneficence. Let the love of God flow through you to others. And the more you receive, give. And the more you give, the more you receive. Whatever God has given to you, time, energy, talents, abilities, whatever He has given, give to others to uplift, to build, to to minister in your community. Give, and the more you give, the more you will receive. Choose to become part of God's circle of love, his circle of life, and give, give, give until the day we will meet him face to face. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. We thank you so much that you don't run your universe on willy-nilly made-up rules, but you have principles that emanate from your own character of beneficence and good and giving. Open our minds to understand. And as we choose to open our hearts, pour your spirit of love out to regenerate, to recreate us in righteousness. Purge that fear, that selfishness from our hearts and bring us back into unity with you that we can leave this place in union, in harmony with you, loving others as you have loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.